today I'm wrapping up a sermon series that we've been going through this summer. We've been studying what it means to live in light of the second coming of Christ, what it means to live in his return by, uh, and, and responding to that coming by sharing the gospel, sharing the good news about Jesus Christ. So we're wrapping up that series today, so please join me in prayer and then we'll read through our passage. Lord God, thank you that you are here. And I ask that your presence would be evident and working on our hearts as we receive your word. May your Holy Spirit show up right now. Amen. I like watching a reality television show called Capture. Now I know when some of you hear the words reality television, you cringe. And if that's you, just bear with me for a moment so I can tell you a little bit about Capture. Capture is pretty much a high-tech game of Capture the Flag, Paintball, and the Hunger Games. And since I'm from the mountains of Colorado, you can see why I would like all of these things. And so what it is, is it's a contest. There's about 12, 12 teams of two, and they have to survive for about a month in the woods on, a, on about 4,000 acres. And every few days, there are hunters chosen, and the rest are prey. And if you can survive the entire month, you win a lot of money. Uh, but these hunters, uh, when the time is right, they begin to chase the prey. And so the prey have to, have to stay away from the hunters, and so they, they go through the woods and they have to keep moving. They have to keep walking, because if they stay in one place too long, they'll get caught. And so they keep busy running and running and running until the hunt is over. Now, this is not the most true of reality television, television shows. It's not the most real. At the end of every episode, it says that some scenes were recreated, you know, because the cameraman wasn't there, and as the action was happening, he didn't get it. But something about its essence, something about its nature rings true. Something about what it is and what it's telling us about life. Us, our friends, our family members, our coworkers, sometimes we too feel like prey. We feel as if something or someone is always out to get us. And we attribute our feelings of helplessness and hopelessness to either our jobs, our careers, our relationships, our family members, the opposing political party, but I think there's something else going on. Scripture tells us that we are indeed prey, that Satan prowls around, the devil prowls around seeking someone to devour, that there is a hunter. But I think the hunter is actually even closer than that. It's much closer than we expect. See, the hunter is our sin, and our sin, our wrong deeds before God, our disobedience before God lives inside of us. And that hunter is out to get us. Our sin will get us. And so we as humans try and stay busy. We try to save ourselves from the hunter. Some try to save themselves from the hunter by pouring their lives into their careers. Others try to save themselves from the sin, from the hunter, by pouring themselves into good deeds and philanthropy. And even more people pour themselves into various forms of religion. Some even turn to reality television for salvation. 
But in a real world of real risk, who is right and what is real? The Bible tells us the truth about reality. It tells us we are prey to sin. But it doesn't stop there. It gives us hope. It gives us the good news of salvation. So let's read uh, that passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 11, where it tells us the good news, the gospel. It tells us about that hope we have. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, by which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. So what is this hope that we have of evading capture? What is this hope that we have of evading sin? Is it real? Is it true? Well, the gospel offers real salvation. The gospel offers real salvation. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, to the church at Corinth. And to put it bluntly, they weren't doing very well. False teachers had deceived them. Sexual sin had shamed them. The gifts of the Holy Spirit had confused them. And now they are so confused, they seem to have forgotten the gospel. They seem to have forgotten their salvation and the hope they have in Jesus. And so what does Paul do? He reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of their salvation. First, he reminds them, reminds them that the gospel has saved them. Second, that the gospel is the foundation for their salvation. And third, that the gospel is saving them and will save them. So first, the gospel has saved them. Verses 1 and 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. When Paul says that they received the gospel, he's saying that they put their faith in the gospel. They owned it. They took it to heart. See, the Corinthian church is full of Christians. It's full of people who at one point in time put their faith in Christ and received salvation. But Paul is telling them that, that, yes, you have been saved, but it's more than just that one-time occurrence. There's more going on than that. So first, the gospel has saved them. And second, the gospel is the foundation of their salvation. This is what he means when the gospel, which you received, in which you stand. In which you stand, their foundation. Now, this, this word, in which you stand, is actually one word in the original language. 
and it's a special word. Uh, it's what grammarians like to call uh, the perfect tense. It's in the perfect tense. So it's a special for form of the verb. And whenever you see the perfect tense in the New Testament, you get excited. You get excited because it means slow down and pay attention. Because what happened in the past has implications for the present. And so, yes, you received your salvation, but you are to continue on in the saving faith. You received it, you received the gospel, but you have to continue on in it because this saves you. The gospel is the foundation of their salvation. Third, the gospel saves them and will save them. This is what Paul means in verse 2 when he says the gospel by which you are being saved. The gospel by which you are being saved. Now, the last verb was in the perfect tense, but it was an active verb. It says stand in the gospel. That's, that's our responsibility to, to stick to the gospel. But Christ says, the, Paul, Paul writes, that God is the one doing the saving in this verb. See, it's in, the, it's in the passive. It says you are being saved. It's a divine passive. God is the one doing the saving. So God, God not only saves us now, but he will continue to save us. It's an amazing message that we receive salvation in the past. We are to continue, but God will ensure that we, we continue in our saving faith now and that we continue in our saving faith till the end. Chances are you probably don't remember the first time you took a breath. Now, you were a baby, a newborn baby, and you took that first breath. And that first breath, it saved your life. Without that first breath, you would have died. But now, imagine if you'd only taken one breath, you would have died. You had to continue in that pattern of breathing. And right now, as far as I can tell, all of you are also breathing. And if you want to keep living, you must continue breathing. And notice how breathing, it's something that we think about occasionally. It's active, we do it, but it's actually passive. God created us to breathe, and we don't have to think about every breath. That would be annoying. The gospel is the breath of the church. The gospel saved us, it saved the church, but we must continue in that pattern of breathing the gospel if we hope to live. And Christ ensures us, assures us that the church, his bride, will continue to the end. But that does not mean every single local church will continue. Paul says that you can believe in vain. And so if a local church strays from the gospel, they will suffocate and they will die. But God assures us that the local church, that the, his church, the bride, the universal church, will continue in salvation and will be saved. So we can rest assured in that. So what exactly is this gospel message? I keep using the term gospel. Maybe you're new here. You're like, I don't know what that means. Maybe you've been here a while and you've heard the term gospel used so many times. You're wondering, uh, you know, what exactly is the gospel? Well, the gospel is Jesus' real death and his real resurrection. 
reading verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you of, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This gospel is Jesus' real death and his real resurrection. Jesus really died for our sins. Jesus really died for our sins. Now, the Apostle Paul has received this message. He's not preaching a new gospel. He has not come up with this on his own. What separates him from characters like uh, Joseph Smith or the Prophet Muhammad from the Mormons and the Muslims is that it wasn't an individual character. There was a large group of people that received the same message and took it in and believed it. And Paul is passing this along. And he's reminding them of the gospel, which is of first importance. importance. So whatever comes next, we have to pay attention. It's very important. And what is this gospel? It's that Jesus died for our sins. In other words, Jesus died on behalf of our sins. This is what we call the atonement. This is the full atonement. This is substitutionary atonement. That Jesus took the burden of our sins and placed them on himself. And he died in our places. And that God takes the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus and places it on us. Jesus died for our sins. And this is in fulfillment of Scripture. This is in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, the prophet Isaiah, between six and 700 years earlier, prophesied about the atonement, prophesied that Jesus, that the Messiah, would die for our sins six to 700 years prior. In Isaiah 53, 5, which we already once, read once, it says, But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Jesus is crushed for our sins, and he gives us healing, and he gives us peace in its place. Isaiah 53.5 is called the burning heart of the Old Testament. Well, the atonement is the burning heart of the New Testament. Jesus died for our sins. But how do we know that Jesus really died? How can we be assured that he really was crushed for our sins if we put our faith in him? Well, Jesus was really dead in the grave. Jesus was really dead in the grave. Scripture emphasizes that he was buried. It says that he died for our sins, but then he was buried. So it emphasizes that he really did die. He was so dead, his followers buried him in a tomb and they walked away mourning, and the tomb was sealed. Now, in America, we don't really have a good uh, understanding of what a tomb is like. We have graveyards, and uh, it's just not like a tomb. Uh, I, I went to Croatia this summer, as you've heard many times, and uh, I, I got to see their graves there, their family grave sites. And it's a little bit more like a tomb than we have here in America. In Croatia, they have a marble slab that's about five feet wide and maybe ten feet long, and it covers a family, a family grave. And I actually got to look inside one of these when the, the marble slab was moved off. 
And as you can imagine, I didn't want to get too close to the edge, but uh, I did look from about two or three feet away, and I couldn't see the bottom. That's how deep it was. And there's a, con uh, a simple conveyor and rack system where they lower the caskets into this grave. And two caskets, they can, they can fit side by side in this grave. That's how big it is. Between six to 12 caskets deep. It's a lot more like a tomb than what we have. And I don't know about you, but I would much rather be buried six feet under than six caskets under. Jesus Christ descended into this darkness, into this death for us, for sin. Jesus really died on the cross, and he was really dead in the grave. So what hope is there? What hope is there if Jesus really died? If it all ends there, we've gathered here for no reason at all. But Jesus really rose from the grave. Jesus really rose again. In verse 4, it says that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, we know that the grave, three days later, was empty. We know this because even his enemies said the grave is empty. The grave was so empty, Jesus' enemies had to make up stories about why the grave was empty. They said the disciples stole him, that, 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 that his followers stole the body. They wouldn't have needed to make up a story if it wasn't true that Jesus' body was at least gone. But Jesus actually rose from the grave in newness of life. And we see this foretold in Scripture. This is foretold in the Old Testament. Now, we talked about the prophet Isaiah, which is six to 700 years prior. Now, if that's not good enough, go back another three to 400 years to King David, a thousand years earlier. And this is what King David prophesied about the Messiah. He said, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He prophesied the Messiah would rise. Also, the prophet Hosea, which is about 700 years before Christ, he also prophesied. He said, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. The prophet Hosea prophesied the three-day resurrection. And it came true with Jesus Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, notice that verb. It says he was raised Guess what tense this is in? It's in the perfect. That means pay attention, slow down. And I already told you that the perfect tense verbs are special. But this is a really special, special perfect tense verb. Because it's in what grammarians like to call the consummative perfect. It's the consummation of the perfect. Because the raising of Jesus from the grave, the real resurrection of Jesus Christ is the consummation of the gospel. It is the peak, it is the high point of the gospel that Jesus really rose from the grave. But why does this matter? That Jesus died for our sins, that he was really dead in the grave, and that he really rose from the grave. Well, Jesus really died and he really rose so that we can really believe. 
Jesus really died and he really rose so that we can really believe. This is what the rest of the passage talks about. Uh, the church really believed that Jesus died and rose again. Verses 5 through 7 say, And that he appeared to Cephas, Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. See, Jesus rose from the grave, but he didn't appear to just one or two or even three people. He confirmed his resurrection with many different people. First, it started with Peter, with his then with his disciples, but then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. So let's say, uh, if I were to tell you that Pastor Dana preached up here last week, and maybe you're new here, maybe you're a visitor, maybe you've never met this Dana guy, and you don't believe me. You're like, no, no, Pastor Dana did not preach up front. He was not up here. I don't believe you. Well, I would say, well, turn to the person to your left or on the person on your right because they saw him. He preached up here. And Paul is saying something very similar. He's saying that if you don't believe me, ask the people that also witnessed it because many of them are still alive. They're still around. They really saw Jesus. But how do we know that these people don't just want to believe? How do we know that they aren't just his, they were already his followers, so it makes sense that they would come together and they would create a beautiful memory of a way that they can remember Jesus and that his, his life would live on. The church was made up of skeptics who became believers. The church was made up of skeptics who became believers. The text specifically mentions James, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and it also mentions uh, Paul, last of all, he appeared as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. James is the brother of Jesus. And James uh, had a hard time believing in Jesus. The New Testament tells us that. that He had a hard time believing that Jesus is the Messiah, that he has, has come. And it wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that, Jesus, uh, that James put his faith in Jesus as the Messiah. The apostle Paul was originally called Saul, and he was a zealot. He actually persecuted the church. It says he was on the opposing side. He, he sent Christians and believers to prison. He murdered them. He killed them. See, the resurrection of Jesus turned radical disbelievers, radical skeptics, into radical believers, willing to die on behalf of Christianity, on the message of Christ. That says a lot about the truth of the gospel, because it's one thing to, uh, to convince your followers of a message, but it's something entirely different to convince your enemies, to turn radical skeptics into radical believers. And the church was made up of men who wouldn't just believe anything. Now, the disciples were fishermen. Maybe some of you have seen the uh, reality television show called Wicked Tuna. Now, Wicked Tuna is filmed up on the North Shore, and it is a show about a couple tough guys who fish outside of Gloucester and fish for tuna. 
That was my best impression. They fished for tuna. And uh, the news recently told a story about them that as they were out fishing, they caught a 920-pound tuna. Now, if you don't know how big that tuna is, we're talking Jaws' little brother. And when they caught this horse-sized fish, they went crazy. And one of the guys named Gorley, I love that name, Gorley, he said to the local news channel, he said, I thought, this is amazing. I can't believe that this actually happened to us. This is such a gift. I bet the disciples, when they witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, thought the exact same thing. This is such a gift. And they went crazy if they wouldn't share, if they didn't share. So they went out and told the good news. One of the other fishermen was quoted as saying something like, catching this fish has ruined us because we will never catch a fish this big again. Well, you will never receive a message as big as the gospel again. And it is my prayer for you that the gospel would absolutely ruin you. That unless you're out there and you're sharing about Jesus Christ, that you'd be ruined. The believers were made up of men who wouldn't just believe anything. And what does God call these new believers to do? He calls the church to humbly believe the gospel. That's the first thing he calls them to do, to humbly believe the gospel. Now, sometimes it's good to read through a whole book of the Bible in one sitting, to sit down for one or two hours and read straight through. So I read through the book of 1 Corinthians. And what I noticed about 1 Corinthians is that it is like a sandwich. Yes, that's right. I compared a book of the Bible to a sandwich. Chapters 3 through chapters 14 are all about church governance, guidance, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're the meat, cheese, leaves of the, of the message. But chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 15 are all about the gospel. Why do you think Paul opens and closes the book of 1 Corinthians with the gospel? Because we need the gospel. 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul speaks of those who are being saved. We read that verse earlier. And then in 15, verse 2, we read about those who are being saved. 1 Corinthians 1.23, Paul preaches Christ crucified. And then in 15.11, he preaches again. We preach so that you believed. Why do you think? Paul begins and ends with the gospel because the church needs the gospel. The church is called to humbly believe the gospel. But if that's all we do is believe, then we're missing half the picture. Because God calls us to respond in other ways. The church is called to humbly share the gospel. The church is called to humbly share the gospel. Paul is a great example of this. He realizes that he doesn't deserve to hear the good news about Jesus, the gospel. He doesn't deserve to believe the good news about Jesus. 
And he certainly doesn't deserve to go out and preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you also understand that you don't deserve to hear the gospel? Nothing in you makes you worthy to hear the good news about Jesus Christ. You are a sinner and you deserve the judgment of God. And yet God loves you and pours out your grace and gives you the opportunity to hear the good news about Jesus, to hear the gospel. And how does Paul respond? He responds in obedience by preaching the good news about Jesus. And we also are called to do the same, to go out and to share the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection, the saving life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But why does this matter in the end? How does it apply today? Well, the church is called to humbly share the gospel so that we can really believe. You see, Jesus really died and he really rose so that we can really believe. Jesus really died and he really rose so we can really believe. We can really believe that death is not the end we can really believe that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. We can really believe that when death knocks, Christ has answered the door. I was given permission by a friend to share this story. It's a personal story. My, some of you heard about this this week through the prayer chain. My childhood friend Rachel, back in Colorado this week, this week, received the news that she has uterine cancer. She received the news that she has cancer. And how important do you think the true news, the true good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are important? How essential do you think they are to her, her husband, and her three little girls? That Jesus really died and he really rose so that we can really believe. You better believe it's important that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is real. Now Rachel comes from a Christian family. They're also Jewish. And her grandparents are Jewish and they do not believe in Christ. And They've shared the gospel with her grandmother on multiple occasions, many, many times, shared Christianity, the good news about Jesus, and she has never put her faith in Christ. And it wasn't until this week, she's also on her deathbed, Rachel's not on her deathbed, but her grandmother is on her deathbed with her third round of cancer. But it wasn't until this week when she heard that her granddaughter had cancer too, that she put her faith in Christ Jesus, that she was finally able to believe. You know what she said when she heard that her granddaughter had cancer? We need Jesus. All we need is Jesus. What a bitter, sweet week. Bitter because sin has its sting. Sweet because the gospel is real. Sweet because Rachel and now her grandmother can stand in the, the reality, the truth of the gospel, the real death and the real rising again, the real resurrection of Christ Jesus. That no matter what happens going forward, they can trust in him.
Jesus really died and really rose so we can really believe. A strange truth about reality television is that most of it isn't real. Many of the scenes are staged or pre-written with a script. And so as people watch these shows and watch the media and watch the news, they begin to not believe anything. That's not true. Well, this must not be true. This entire sense of not knowing what is real has invaded our entire culture. And since nothing is true, well, everything must be true. Well, they're right about one thing. Reality television is not true. But the gospel is true. What we believe about Jesus Christ is real. Jesus really died and he really rose so that we can really believe. And we need to share this message with a really lost world. We don't deserve to share this message. Nothing in us makes us worthy to share this message. But God, in his grace and his love towards us, he calls us to share the good news about Jesus Christ. As we wrap up this sermon series, let's get excited. Let's get excited about going out and sharing the good news with our family, with our friends, with our neighbors, with our loved ones. Because if there's anything a really lost world needs, it's the reality of the gospel. Jesus really died and he really rose so we can really believe. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the reality of the gospel. Thank you that your real death and real resurrection are true. May we take your message, your gospel message to heart. And may we go out and share this message with the lost and hurting world. In Jesus' name, amen. And again, rise for the benediction. This comes from the very ending of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 23 through 24. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen.